Hey everybody, Payments Professor here, and I am so excited to be able to welcome you today to the Payments Podium, where we have a very special guest, a longtime friend, Peter Tapling from PTAP Advisors. He's going to help us understand the difference between FedNow, CBDC, are they the same? Are they different? But before we get started on that, I first of all want to say, Peter, welcome to the Payments Podium. Payments Professor, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to share the screen with you. Well, and, and as we go to share the screen, one thing I ask everybody, all guests on the Payments Podium to get things started is, how did you get started in electronic payments? You know, a lot of people, it's usually an interesting story. I've yet to meet anybody who was like, oh, I was in kindergarten. And I'm like, I want to know how that payment got processed and said, that's what I'm doing the rest of my life. But no, for you, start, how's that story that go? Way. But I was but a wee wee pup. Um, Years ago, I'm talking many years ago, I was a systems engineer in an application development tool company. And one of our customers was Sears Robot. And I got called into a meeting one day and asked to sign a super secret NDA that I can't tell anybody about because they were going to use our platform to build the Discover Card network. And so I spent the next three months um, helping people understand how to use our tool to build Discover. And to this day, I still have my Discover card that I got. Uh, they made me fill out an application that day. So I, I still have the same Discover card. Wow. So we didn't mean for this to be a commercial for Discover, but apparently not. you were out discovering how electronic payments worked on behalf of and, Discover. And, and that is what I learned, that the payments industry is a black hole and that once you get sucked over the event horizon, you can never make it out again. Yeah. Okay. I will agree. Everybody I talked to, nobody has escaped. <laughs> All right. Well, one thing we are here to discover, something that's really important. It's something that we've seen pop up in the news a lot lately. And it, it is one of those things that when you start talking about Fed now, I want to really work to eliminate some of the myths. I want to be able to get to some of the facts. And there's some confusion out there. So I'm hearing people talk about Fed now as a CBDC or, you know, or that it's not a CBDC. And I would love for you to help us clear that up. But before we do that, I think the first thing is, could you help us define what is a CBDC, you know, a central bank digital currency? What exactly is a CBDC? Can we define that and get started there? Sure. So I'm, I'm going to break it into a couple of pieces first. You know, what is a digital currency in this day and age? So in this day and age, um, 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto releases the Bitcoin paper. It introduces a digital way to share cash. 2015, Ethereum comes out. It has the ability to share cash, but also be programmable within the network. Over time, a variety of digital currency projects have been launched, but the bottom line is they all carry a few common characteristics. One is they're wallet-based, where a wallet is something that an individual or a company controls using cryptography, a public-private key pair. It is not account-based, right? Two is these mechanisms for movement of money there is no middle person. The middle person is the network. So there's no Visa, there's no MasterCard, there's no Discover Network, there's no Federal Reserve, there's no EPN. Um, the money moves from wallet to wallet through trust mechanisms in the network. And the third is it's programmable, meaning I can take characteristics that I want to have happen to the money and have it stored with the money, right? So if we take those three things as digital currency, 
Now, second, let's understand what a central bank currency is. Note that I said central bank currency. Okay, okay. quick review. A digital currency is just, there's going to be a digital wallet. It's going to be built off a trust. There's no middleman that's actually controlling it. And that just makes a basic digital currency. And programmable. And programmable. programmable. Right. Okay. Okay. So the second thing is, what's a fiat currency? What's a central bank currency? And it's funny, you know, Kevin, I speak in front of a lot of audiences of bankers. And I ask, I always hold up a dollar bill and I, I say, I, I want a banker in the room to tell me what this is. And they can all tell me it's a dollar bill, but I'm like, no, tell me what is a dollar. And it's amazing how many bankers have a problem explaining that. But essentially a fiat currency within any sovereign realm, in our case, the United States, is a means of exchange of value that's created by the government to both encourage commerce within the realm and to provide some amount of control over the economy within the realm. That's it. It's a means of exchanging value. We happen to call it the U.S. dollar. And that control, real quick, because there are some people out there that listen to the payments professor, watch the videos, YouTube, stuff like that, that they're not as educated and uh, on payments. They're very educated people. Let me, let me clarify myself here. They're very educated people, but they're not as educated on payments. And they hear control and they start thinking, oh, wait a minute, is that complete monitoring and you know being able to control how my money spent, where my money goes? Is, is that the type of control that you mean? Or w- what would you really mean when you say control? Of well, the per- perhaps a better word would be influence. But when I talk about controlling the economy, of late, we've had high interest rates. We've had some inflation. The inflation has caused the Federal Reserve to increase the federal funds rate, which is the rate at which it will lend money to financial institutions. That influencing of the economy is really what I mean, right? They want to be able to have the ability, interstate commerce in the United States. I can walk with my dollar bill from, you know, I live in Illinois. I can walk into a Starbucks in Florida and they will look at my dollar bill and understand exactly what it is. Ask no questions. Take it. Full faith and credit of the United States government backing the dollar bill, right? And so it is that means of exchange of value that becomes so clearly understood within the economy that you can't really explain what it is. It's just there. Gotcha. I love that. I think you did a great job of explaining that too. It's really just to make sure that the money we have stays with the value, has value to it, and that the economy doesn't come crashing down. A well understood value. Right. So now let's take those two things and bring them together. Right. Let's do it. So a digital currency, wallet based, no middleman, doesn't necessarily go through a bank, um, and the ability to be programmable in money, typically using a ledger but a ledger is not strictly required. Central bank currency is a value, an exchange of value mechanism controlled by the central bank. You put those two things together and you have a currency that behaves the way that we've come to learn that digital currencies behave. It's wallet-based, it's programmable, I can exchange the value of it and I understand, you know, and and I, through wallets, and I could potentially program against it. But rather than being Bitcoin or Ethereum, which go up and down in value by significant amounts every day, it's a central bank currency. So the value of the exchange is the value that is set by the central bank. One of the questions I get all the time is, would a central bank digital currency be pegged to the dollar? And that's the wrong use of words. It would not be pegged to the dollar. It would be 
a dollar. So can we do some further clarification? Because um, a lot a lot of people will listen to this. I think you probably even heard my son, Liam. He just turned 13 and he loves to, you know, discuss this stuff and tell me we make it complicated in our industry, which I can't argue with them. Sometimes we do make it complicated. And he said to me, a central bank digital currency is basically when I look at my bank account and I see the money there in a digital format, it's actual equal to a dollar as I understand it. But that's what a central bank digital currency is because right now it just represents the money I could actually physically go pull out. 13 year old. That's what his, his explanation. Yeah. So I would, I would tell Liam, you know, the fact that you're looking at an account means that you're not looking at a wallet. So you're looking at a traditional banking relationship, not a digital currency, digital currency equals wallet based. Okay. So that wallet basis is an important thing. And I know you and I have talked about this a lot, but why, why would we need a central bank digital currency? So I'm going to lean on Liam here. So Liam plays Fortnite and he says, hey, I want to buy a new sword. What happens when Liam wants a new sword? Hey, dad, I need your credit card, right? Yes. Why? Because it's really hard to take a dollar bill and jam it into the keyboard of a computer. Okay. So in this digital universe, that is Fortnite, because we have no way to exchange true central bank value digitally, purely digitally, we have to take our dollars, our traditional central bank dollars, go through the credit card network, allow the credit card network to give the money to Fortnite as a merchant, and they put it on a ledger in their universe. Now we know because we're in payments, that payment is incredibly inefficient. Like yeah. you're gonna charge it, they're gonna pay a, couple hundred basis points of a fee, you there might or might not get full value of the money immediately. You're going to get a bill. You might or might not pay your bill right away. It could be 60 days before that $10 of value was exchanged and what we like to call cleared and settled um, between you and Fortnite. And so in a world with a central bank currency, in theory, you could allow Liam to have a wallet which is the US dollar in wallet format. And he doesn't come to you anymore. He just says, oh, I want to buy the shield. Here's my wallet address. Here's your wallet address. Move the value. So in a central bank digital currency, if I'm here and right, I don't have to actually have the bank account, but I do have to have the wallet that holds my electronic representation of the US dollar. That's if the US had one. I do want to if, also if say the US, the US does correct. not have this currency. Yep, correct. Correct. Okay, so I think we've got that ironed out now. So basically, and before we go any further, currency. another go thing that I get when I tell that story, the uh -huh. primary use case to build a central bank digital currency is not to buy swords in Fortnite. That's just a visual example. Well, what would be a primary use case then? What would be a good reason to have a central bank digital currency? If, if you could think of, well, first of all, we take central bank digital currencies and we kind of separate the use cases between wholesale and retail. Uh, wholesale is the exchange of value between financial institutions or between the central bank and the financial institutions. Um, retail is you or me or the local coffee shop down the street. Um, and so in the wholesale context, movement of money between financial institutions and between the Federal Reserve and particularly cross-border is very inefficient. Um, wire transfers, we all know the wire window is nine to five banking hours on banking days. 
Um, we have experienced some of this problem with the modern RTP network as people try to figure out how do I fund my balance at the uh, joint master account at the New York Fed. Separate topic for a separate uh, podcast. But the bottom line is um, it's relatively inefficient. And so, you know, from a wholesale perspective, there are a lot of efficiencies that can be driven out of something, out of a more efficient way to move value. We'll just leave it at that. Um, now, on the retail side, think of any of the examples where you are in a digital experience and the product you are buying is a digital product. So I used Fortnite and Swords as an example, but it could be songs that pick your favorite song provider. I'm trying not to do commercials, but uh, right. you know, pick your favorite digital platform. And if you're trying to exchange value um, digitally, um, uh, I, one of the great use cases for electronic payments generally, I think, is tips. I don't know about you, but in a world where I'm almost, I might not be carrying cash, I tip less. Now that's unfair to the people who are giving me services. Right. But if I had a US dollar way that is anonymous, that I can exchange value five bucks for getting my car out of the valet, maybe I would do that. Now that needs an ecosystem sitting on top of the central bank digital currency, but it's a much more efficient way to exchange that value. Can I hit on a word you just said there, anonymous? So can a central bank digital currency, if we were to have one here, and for example, like in giving a tip, can it be done in an anonymous way? So the answer to the question is yes, could. You use the word could, so I can say I, yes, right? When people think of central bank digital currencies, and, and we've all heard the stories of, oh my gosh, you know, somebody did ransomware and they use Bitcoin and the FBI tracked them down through their wallet address because it's not really anonymous, it's pseudonymous, and I, I can always find the address and then I just have to attack, attach that to a person or an entity and I can go get them. That's the way Bitcoin was designed, right? There are other coins, Monero, that were designed to be, they're fully digital coins, but they were designed to be anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at cash, cash today... I would say is more or less pseudonymous, right? Meaning any given dollar bill doesn't belong to you or me and it's hard to track it, but we can track how much money you pulled out of the ATM. We can track how much cash you put into the bank. It's one of the reasons that we have uh, CTR reports for high values, high volumes of cash, right? Um, so at the end of the day, you know, the cash, when you own it, you want it to be yours. You want it to be identified as being yours. But what we really want is the ability to transact that I can give you $10 because we bet on whether or not the Tampa Bay Lightning would make the, make the next round of the playoffs. Sorry about that. Um, but, uh, but the bottom line is we want that for whatever list of reasons to, to not carry our names with that transaction. Um, when you look at central bank digital currencies, I always tell people, look at three things, right? Mm -hmm. Starts with policy. What does the central bank want to accomplish by bringing this capability to market? The second is technology. How am I going to build this thing? Am I going to build it on an Ethereum network? And am I going to build it on a Hedera Hashgraph network? Am I not going to use a distributed ledger at all? And then the third is features. And the features are the way the product behaves and expresses itself to its users. And I would argue that privacy is both a policy thing. Do we want the system to be privacy enhancing? 
and a feature thing. What capabilities have I put into the product to make it so that it is less obvious who did any given transaction? If you look at the way we treat cash today, one of, you know, we've all heard the phrase, follow the money, right? Marked dollar bills, marked hundred dollar bills. You know, the, the federal government for purposes of fighting crime would like to know where every dollar is. Here in the United States, we are very privacy sensitive. We think that it's really good idea for the, them to know where the bad guy's money is, but we don't want them to know where my money is. Right. Okay, and that that's really huge. As we segue into what FedNow is, one question I want to answer that I get a lot from people has to do with that tracking too. So, you know, still on that anonymous. And I want to point out that in mentioning policy technology and features, again, the U.S. does not have a CBDC. If they were to create one, we don't know what those would be right now. And those would be the things for everybody listening if, and that is if one was created, you'd want to be paying attention to the, how those things come about. But when we mention payment channels that are currently available in the U.S., where we look at our wires, we look at cash, we look at checks, we look at cards, and we have the ACH network, are those trackable currently? A hundred percent, without a doubt. I mean, all of those are bank services. You cannot access those products without having a bank account. In order to get a bank account, you go through AML, KYC, beneficial owner, know your customer, know your customer's customer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the end of the day, again, I go back to the follow the money story. You don't have to watch too many crime programs where the detectives go in and they say, oh, I hacked into the bank account. I saw all these payments come from here. And it ties back to this shell corporation over here. And we tied that to the bad guys, right? So at the end of the day, all of the payment mechanisms that we have today that are digital are trackable. And even cash to a certain extent is still trackable. Cash to an extent. I mean, if you're going to deposit big amounts of money, any deposit at an ATM is tracked that, you know, if I go up to my favorite bank um, and I put $200 in the ATM because I want to deposit it or $10 because I won it, I won it betting on the, against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, oh. But I want, but I want to put that in there. That's going to be tracked. It's going to be, it's going to be a line item in the list of transactions that occurred in my in my account. Well, okay. And let me say this too: just because it can be tracked doesn't mean it is tracked. And a lot of that, like even in your example, it is one of those things that, in many cases, it's because there's reason to go back and look at it. There's the detective getting involved and the detective has to have a subpoena. The detective can't just jump into anybody's account and do this. There's, you know, the legal aspects of that that get involved. So anybody Correct. listening, just because it can be tracked doesn't mean it is being tracked. And if they do go look, it is usually after the fact and they can't just go look at anybody without uh, probable cause type situations. Correct. All right. Can, let's move on to Fed now. So now, FedNow is this brand new what that's coming from out. What, what is FedNow? How do we explain that to common people that aren't yeah. so know, in, payments? In, in payments geeky land, you know, inside the black hole, we, we call FedNow a new payment rail. Uh, it is a fundamentally new set of highways between financial institutions to move money. Uh, earlier, we talked about the ACH, been around for 40 years. Anyone who gets direct deposit has received an ACH. 50 years ago, when they built the ACH, they built it to work in an IBM mainframe environment, and they built it to mirror how 
the clearing of checks behaved. The clearing of checks is physically take a bucket full of checks, bring them to a clearinghouse, separate them up to the various banks. They walk away. They go figure out what they're going to do. They come back and then they exchange back again, right? So the ACH was built as a batch system to kind of mirror that, that processing, that end of day processing. Why are we doing that 50 years later? 50 years ago, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have an inherent expectation that when I hit a button, stuff would happen, right? Um, and so, the, the and by the way, the United States is not unique in rolling out instant payments. Um, in fact, we're probably pretty slow. There are some 60 countries around the world that have instant payment schemes launched. We've had one in the United States in RTP since 2018. So FedNow is an instant payment rail. What does that mean? Well, it's got three or four characteristics I would highlight. One, it is a credit push only system. What that means is the owner of the money has to have the money and then give their bank an instruction that says, take the money out of my account and send it somewhere else. Credit push, right? Okay, so if it's credit push, that means nobody can come debit my account using FedNow and take money out of it, and I, I don't have to worry about overdrafts. Is that Correct. right? Correct. Correct. And for your listeners, that example of a debit, if you've gone into your local cable company and said, I'm willing to allow you to take the amount of my bill out every month, and you enter your routing number and your account number, that's a debit transaction when the cable company reaches into your bank account and pulls money out. Okay, so it's a credit push only. It's an instant payment. What else? It's are instant. Have to do the asterisk because you know it does. It's not actually instant. It's ten or fifteen seconds. But the bottom line is, within ten or fifteen seconds from when I say send money to Kevin, my bank is going to con connect to Fed now, say it wants to make the payment, connect to your bank, decide that your bank is willing to receive it, and then they'll do a thumbs up, and money comes out of my account goes to my bank's Federal Reserve account, moves from my bank's Federal Reserve account to your bank's Federal Reserve account, and it's delivered to you all within several seconds. So that's the instant part. And instant, today, okay. so I'll give you a great example. Today with PayPal, if you were to send me the money for our bet in PayPal, then I would get a text message right away and it would go, Zing! Kevin just sent you $10. For that the money, lightning not making it to round two. Oh, is that, did that happen? Um, <laughs> anyway, and again, PayPal, Venmo, Square Cash, Apple Cash, whatever, pick your favorite mechanism. But that money didn't start in your bank account and it didn't end up in my bank account. It started on the balance sheet of PayPal in our example, and it ended on the balance sheet of PayPal. Now, if we use Zelle as an example, and you were to Zelle me the money, in that case, it did start in your bank account and it did end up in my bank account. But remember that whole cleared and settled thing we talked about earlier? They cleared the transaction by agreement, but the rules of the Zelle network, it's a promise to pay network and they actually settle at the end of the day. And so the distinction of FedNow is that movement of money and the messaging about the money all happens instantly, right? So credit push, instant payment, irrevocable, meaning, when I take the money and I tell my bank to send it to you, it is as if I took $10 and I handed it to you and you ripped it out of my hand. That's it. How do I get my money back? I can ask you, but if you decide not to give it to me, I don't get my money back, right? There's no rule. There's no law that says Kevin has to give Peter his $10 back.
And let's be very clear. It works like handing over $10, but it does not replace that $10. It does not replace cash. No, it does not replace cash because it's an electronic payment. Yes. It's a representation of your cash, but it does not replace it in any way. And the fourth thing is it's 24 by 7 by 365. So earlier we talked about ACH and wire as being electronic payment mechanisms. Those only work when a bank is open. So uh, five days a week, except for federal holidays, uh, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., basically your local time. Um, 24 by 7 by 365. So next year, when the Tampa Bay Lightning win the Stanley Cup playoffs, and with your gambling winnings, you go to buy your Lamborghini on a Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock, in theory, you would be able to make an instant payment in cash from your account to the dealer's account and drive away with your Lamborghini. Okay, well, I hope that happens. I'm not a big gambler, but I, I would love to still see the lightning win. Um, the, the thing is, though, I do want to point out too, can we explain a little bit more too about a payment rail? Because FedNow is a payment rail. It is the fastest payment rail in the U.S. Uh, well, it's like RTP, I guess it's you could tied say, for fastest. from the Federal Reserve Bank's. Credit push only, it is irrevocable, and it's available 24-7, 365. But when we say payment rail, what does that really mean? Because, you know, if I ask people, hey, do you use ACH? They'll be like, no. But if I say, do you do direct deposit? They'll go, oh, yeah, I get direct deposit. Yeah, and so then that's I a great explain that's a payment that moved across that rail. It's Correct. A type that's of a payment. great example. Because, because direct deposit is a product, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. The, a payment rail is a capability that's created between financial institutions so that the financial institutions understand how to move the money between themselves. FedNow is a product offered by FRFS, the Federal Reserve Financial Services Group within the Federal Reserve Banks, to financial institutions. So basically a bank signs up to participate in FedNow. Other banks sign up to participate in FedNow. And what that means is those banks can move money between each other. Yay! How do I get to use FedNow? Well, I can't go to FedNow.org and sign up for an account because I'm not a bank, right? So the banks on either side of these transactions have to have products. They have to have capabilities that express this grand new, wonderful 24 by 7 irrevocable instant payment thing to their customers. Now on the receive side, how am I going to see it as a consumer? Well, randomly at three o'clock in the morning, I might see money pop into my account that you know somebody's trying to pay me, or I might see money pop into my account on a Saturday where I never would have seen that in ACH because it's not a banking day. And I will never see that dreaded pending. You've seen that in your mobile app where you see an amount of yes. money that's in your account and it says pending. It's there, but you can't really touch it. Well, and let's be clear too, this is for banks and credit unions. It's a network that's been built for them to be able to use. And the reason it is done that way is to further protect the U.S. economy, to make sure that we have these secure gatekeepers for where this money movement takes place at a higher level, but allows those banks and credit unions to then be able to offer products and services that use these rails to their consumers, to their customers, their members, however you want to look at it. Correct. All right. And now, would I be right if I say, too, because of FedNow being 24-7, 365, being instant, it's making it easier for 
your local bank, your community bank, your local credit union, all of you around the U.S., because it is also a U.S.-only based payment. We haven't said that, I don't know, sure, but it currently is only a U.S.-based payment, but it makes it so that the local banks and credit unions in your community now have an equal way to be able to play with, compete, offer services that you see, say, in the app store or that you see from some of the major, larger financial institutions. Yeah, or partner with some of those people who are going to put something in the app store and be the on-ramp to this payment rail for that party. Yes. So uh, basically all instant payment schemes around the world, when they came to market, came to market as a domestic only service. So if you're in the UK using faster payments, you can only trade, uh, you know, uh, British pounds between a British bank account and a British bank account. If you're in um, Singapore using, I think it's, my pay or something like that. You can trade Singapore dollars between Singapore banks. Um, only recently are bridges starting to be built between those ecosystems. But for right now, particularly in the U.S., these are domestic only payments. All right. Um, Go ahead. And, and, you know, wait, uh, you, you brought something else up and I can't remember what it is. What was the second part? Uh, leveling the playing field and making yes. it to yes. where everybody so leveling can the playing field is easier. Again, I'm going to I'm going to harken back to ACH. You know, we were talking about ACH earlier. ACH in the United States is a truly ubiquitous payment rail. Literally every single financial institution is connected to the ACH network um, and all but some tiny, tiny fraction of a percent can both send and receive. So earlier, Kevin, we were talking about the ACH. And the ACH network is an example in the United States of a truly ubiquitous rail. Every single financial institution in the United States is connected to the ACH network. Uh, almost all of them can both send and receive. The instant payment rails are available to all financial institutions, but no one has said that they must join. And if they do join, no one has said, how must they offer this product to their members or to their customers? Um, and so this issue of adoption of instant payments is something you and I are going to be talking about for years to come. Um, and to, to help the audience understand, if we look at other countries around the world, their instant payment scheme has almost universally come to market under some sort of regulatory or legal mandate, where at least the largest financial institution must join the network and must make it available to their customers. But we're not doing that in the U.S. We're not saying market driven, baby. To we're going to be market driven, and the market might move fast, and the market might move slow. Right. Okay. So, can we answer the question we started with? Is Fed now a CBDC? Ha! Yeah, I love that question. So, the answer to the question, unequivocally, Fed now is not a central bank digital currency. They are two separate universes. Do not cross the streams. And I'll give a couple of examples. If we go back to our original definition of a digital currency inherited by a central bank digital currency, it is wallet-based. It is not account-based. So I don't necessarily have to have an account at a financial institution in order for a central bank digital currency to work. Second, this is a service to banks. FedNow is a service to banks. Banks sign up for FedNow. Banks decide how they're going to make FedNow available to their customers and members. That's it. There's no. So earlier we talked about digital currencies where the trust mechanism and the middleman mechanism is kind of flattened out. 
Um, that's not the case here. FedNow is based on bank accounts, right? So it's account-based, not wallet-based. So big, big differences. All right. I really do only have one more question, and it's really important. It's another one I always ask on the Payments Professor. A lot of people that listen to the Payments Podium are new to electronics or they, payments. Some of them have been around for a long time, but they constantly say, hey, what advice would you give me to improve my career in electronic payments? What did you do? What should I do? How can I work or look at this industry? What are the things I can do to make sure I have a really good career in electronic payments? So Peter, if somebody were to out there were to ask you, hey, what should I do to improve my career in electronic payments? What advice would you give them? Uh, come on in. The water is fine. Um, you know, first of all, is get involved. Right. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, there is um, no college degree in payments. Uh, and so it's difficult to come out of university and say, hey, I'm a payments expert. You can be a financial expert, you can be a technology expert, uh, but there's no degree in payments. I think some of that's changing a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna put a little edge on that. There might be one now. But the bottom line is in order to understand payments, you need to work payments. We're all consumers, we all make payments, but understanding the mechanisms for how that order ahead that I did at my favorite coffee shop turned into a payment that got billed to me on my credit card that my that maybe I have set up for auto pay. How did that whole circle happen, right? Um, there are plenty of opportunities for education. Uh, NACHA is the uh, rule writer for the ACH network. They have a large annual conference. There's a collection of regional payments associations. You can find the list of them at centerforpayments.org. Scroll to the bottom of the screen. Um, they have regional payments conferences that are largely education-based. Um, there are accreditations available. So you can become an AAP, an accredited ACH professional, an APRP, an accredited risk pay payment risk professional. Um, and soon you'll be able to come become an AFPP, an accredited faster payments professional. All right. I, I totally agree with all of that. Um, uh, you know, the payments professors out here working to help make payments a little bit easier to understand and having some fun while we're doing it. I also would say nacha.org. Everybody, uh, you've heard me before, get certified. The payment associations like ePay Resources, EPCOR, they are there to be able to help you. Payments First, WestPay, depending on where you are located, they may be easier for you to be able to make use of their services. Peter, I want to thank you for being on the Payments Podium today and help us to understand that FedNow is not a CBDC. And for those of you out there listening, that if there's a topic that you want to have addressed or there's a speaker you think should be part of the Payments Podium, email me, kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. I will do what I can to make sure that that topic or that speaker becomes part of the Payments Podium to help all of you understand what's happening in the wonderful world of electronic payments. But for now, I have to say, class dismissed. <laughs>